Let me go ahead and grab a seat. It's encouraging to hear the, the buzz of conversation. It's good to be together here, uh, our first Sunday in spring, right? Uh, sure feels that way, although winter's coming back very soon. But my name's uh, Michael McKittrick. If you haven't met me before, I'm on staff here at The Vine and going to be sent out to help start Eastside Church, a Lord willing, in the spring. And just excited to see what God's doing in our mission to make disciples and plant churches amongst neighbors and nations. And uh, glad this morning we get to continue in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're new here this morning, or even just as a refresher, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we've been looking at one of Jesus' disciples as he tells the story of the beginning and ministry of Jesus, the one who would come to fulfill all of God's promises from of old. In the last two weeks in particular, particular, we've looked at how Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of heaven was now at hand because the king had come. And he invites all people to repent, to, to turn from living life their way, to trust and delight and submit to him as the good king, so as to enter his kingdom, and then to invite others to do the same. And so we saw that the last couple of weeks, but if, if Jesus is inviting us to repent, to change, to turn, to submit to his kingdom, then it's worth asking, what's his kingdom going to be like? Is it a kingdom worth submitting to? And Jesus' answer is actually found here in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, his, his largest kind of single body of teaching in all the Gospels. It's Matthew 5 through 7. And you can think of this as Jesus laying out, so to speak, the values of the kingdom. This is what my kingdom values. This is what life looks like in my kingdom. And this is especially true of his first kind of little speech called the Beatitudes. So listen as I read from Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 10. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this kind of statement of so to speak, values of his kingdom maybe surprised you, or they should. Because they seem upside down and backwards to what we're used to thinking. Wait a minute. What you value, Jesus, is poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, being hungry and thirsty. That doesn't make any sense. That's not what our culture values. It's the complete opposite. But maybe that's the point. Maybe Jesus is saying that actually he wants to invite us into a different type of kingdom. One that's countercultural, because if we're honest, as we look around our culture, as we look across human history, we sure don't seem to do a great job of building cultures and communities that are truly good. They always fall apart in some way, shape, or form. And so Jesus is saying, actually, I want to invite you into a better kingdom, a counterculture, something that will be so attractive and winsome that later Jesus would describe it as a city on a hill, a light 
in the dark. The amazing thing about Jesus, when he comes as king, he comes here in his opening speech and he says, blessed. He comes as a king to bring blessing, first and foremost, not judgment. But, but this blessing that he offers only comes to those who are his disciples. He, he teaches, he says, his disciples. Those are the people he is teaching about this. That the blessings come to those who are disciples, followers of him, because those are the only ones that actually are part of his kingdom. Because they've submitted to and trusted and delighted in this good king. And that's why this comes after Jesus' invitation early in chapter 4 to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, you can read the Sermon on the Mount like a giant ethical code. A lot of people have done that through history. If I can just live this out on my own, then we'll be able to build some type of community culture that's good. But you can't do it on your own. You're not sufficient. The only way to lean into his Sermon on the Mount is to realize that it's only those who have been empowered by trusting in Jesus and receiving his spirit that have any hope of somewhat reflecting this. That's why he teaches it to disciples. And this is particularly important because as we go into the Sermon on the, House, Sermon on the Mount later, we're going to see a lot of hard teaching. Some really good teaching, but hard. And what's going to make you lean in and want to listen is if you love King Jesus and you trust him when he says hard but good things. I was thinking, uh, as I was thinking about the sermon, I was remembering a time when I was working at a bank as a teller and got to know some coworkers. And, and one coworker, she had kind of a bit of a Roman Catholic background. And she came to me and said, hey, I got a question for you. What does the Bible say about divorce? I said, well, before I answer that question, let me just share something first. Um, sometimes Jesus says hard things. They're hard for us to hear, but they're for our good. But the only way you lean in and actually believe they're for your good is if you love him, if you trust him, if you believe he really has your best interest at heart. And so that's actually the starting point for you, is come and discover how much Jesus loves you as he laid down his life for you. She's like, okay, tell me what the Bible says about divorce. All right, so I shared with her from the Sermon on the Mount. She's like, you're right, I don't like that at all. And I was like, I told you, like, you need to get right with Jesus. You need to have your heart in love with him first. And so I just want to flag us up front as we spend time in the Sermon on the Mount. We can't try to live this out unless our hearts actually love Jesus and have been captured by his love for us. Let me say one other thing before we dive in is this, that some people in the past have said that the Sermon on the Mount is really only for the Jewish people. It's for them then and maybe in the millennium to come, but there's nothing in the text that suggests that. Jesus teaches his disciples, and one of them, Matthew, recorded it and passed it on to other disciples, and they come to us today. This is meant for us, all followers of Jesus. And I hope that if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, that you would have your curiosity piqued. As you hear what Jesus teaches, you would say, I want in to this kind of community and kingdom. And so since this is so key, we're actually going to slow down and really soak in kind of one beatitude every week for the next couple weeks and just slow down, soak here, so that by God's grace, we might actually be a city on a hill, a light in the dark. So let me pray, and we'll dive into the first beatitude. Father, thank you so much that you have not left us, but as we sang about you sent your son to pursue us when we are lost like sheep, to lay down his life for us. 
And then you didn't leave us either, but you, you left us your word to teach us what it looks like to live a good life under your good rule. And so give us ears to hear this morning for our good. Praise in your name. Amen. Well, as you heard the Beatitudes, you maybe heard the basic pattern to them, right? Blessed are, there's a characteristic given, and then it says for, and then there's a, a motivation, a reason. There's, there's some benefit, there's some blessing given. And so that's what we're going to look at is the blessing and then the characteristic that leads to that blessing this morning. We're going to start with the blessing. But first I want to help us think about what does it mean to be blessed? Because I think sometimes we can hear that word and it's so familiar, but we don't really know what it means. Some other Bible translations sometimes write happy. And that's somewhat right because there's a sense of joy when you're blessed, but it's not directly tied to an emotion. The emotions come with it. It's really that objective state of being in which you are experiencing God's favor. That actually you are living the good life in right relationship with God. That's what it means to be blessed. And the big key is you got to know that being blessed in God has both a now and a not yet element to it. That you taste a little bit of it now, but some of it is to come. You can think of it as almost like you find out a, a rich relative passes away and leaves you millions of dollars worth of bonds, but you have to wait until they mature to collect them. On one hand, you're rich now, and yet it's a not yet wealth. It's a wealth still to come. And, and we see that in the Beatitudes, many of them say they shall, future tense, that there's this blessing to come. But here in this first one, we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are actually tasting the kingdom now, not just in the future. That they actually belong to it. They've got a stake in it. It, It's theirs. And it's interesting, Matthew here uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, and he's the only gospel writer that uses that term. The other gospel writers tend to use kingdom of God. But I think it says Matthew is writing to a predominantly first century Jewish audience who had expectations of the Messiah to come in and create a political, earthly kingdom. And Matthew wants to be clear and say, no, the kingdom Jesus is building is not an earthly, political one. It's bigger than that. It's a heavenly kingdom. That is greater and above all the earthly kingdoms and at work in the midst of all the earthly kingdoms. This is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's not so much a place, but it's a sphere in which people love and trust Jesus, want to live for him and taste the blessing of being in relationship with him. The kingdom of heaven spreads wherever people trust in Jesus and bow the knee to him. This idea of the kingdom of heaven being a spot where we are in relationship and trusting and walking with Jesus is actually seen in his prayer that he teaches us in chapter 6. He says to pray, your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's this heavenly reality that's meant to come and be experienced here on earth, and he calls it a kingdom and his will. They're synonymous. Wherever people love Jesus and do his will, that is where the kingdom is. That's why Jesus says in John the Baptist too, earlier in Matthew, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means stop living life for your will, And trust and delight in Jesus and do his will. That's how you enter the kingdom. 
In fact, it's the only way into the kingdom. It's the only way the kingdom spreads as more people trust and delight in this king. And that's why he tells his followers later, go and proclaim in every town, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what is so great about this kingdom of heaven that it would be worth repenting, turning, changing to be a part of? Well, the kingdom of heaven is where you are at right relationship with your creator God who made you, which is our biggest problem. It's where you get to experience his community that he's building that's marked by his kind of love and where one day you will experience the fruits of everything, creation itself being made perfect as it was meant to be in the beginning and will be in the end. In fact, you get a glimpse of it at the end of chapter 4. We read in verses 23 and 24. And he, that's again Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. See, Jesus is saying... The kingdom is where the king is, and where the king is, sickness is healed. Demonic oppression is rolled back. All the curses of sin removed. And there's a taste of that while Jesus is here on earth, but it's only a small taste. And one day we'll get to taste the fullness of his kingdom. And what will that be like? Well, actually, I think the Beatitudes teach us a bit about it. Because it ends in verse 10 with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It began with it. And I think everything in the middle is showing us what life in the kingdom is like. Life in the kingdom is where mourners are comforted. Where the meek inherit a renewed creation. Where those who hunger and thirst are satisfied. Where mercy, not judgment, rules. Where we get to see God. Where we get to be called sons and daughters, children of God. That's what life in the kingdom is like. And actually, all of these descriptors in the Beatitude, almost every one of them is picked up in John's description in Revelation of heaven. Listen and see if you can hear the echoes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Isn't that a beautiful kingdom? One in which the thirsty are satisfied, where we are called sons and daughters of God. And we taste that in part now. You can read the pages of Acts and look through church history and see that even now, Jesus says, I satisfy your deepest thirst. Even now, you are called children of God. Even now, you taste 
the mercy of forgiveness of sins, but there's so much more still to come to. But you do taste it now. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's the best kingdom. Better than any friend group, community, political party, country. This is what you want to be a part of. So what characteristic leads you to being in? Well, he says it. Poor in spirit. Uh, One of my favorite kids' uh, storybooks is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Even if you don't have any kids, you should just buy and read it because it's so good. Um, It's just beautifully worded, beautiful pictures. But in the chapter on the call of the disciples, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who writes it, puts, puts it this way. Who would make good helpers, do you think? Clever ones? Rich ones? Strong, important ones? Some people might think so, but I'm sure by now you don't need me to tell you they'd be wrong. Because the people God uses don't have to know a lot of things or have a lot of things. They just have to need them a lot. They just have to need him a lot. Or as Jesus would put it, they must be poor in spirit. That's the number one quality, the number one value in Jesus' kingdom. It's, it comes first for a reason. All the others build off this. So just imagine with me putting that on LinkedIn. Michael McKittrick, poor in spirit. Get a lot of interview requests, wouldn't I? No, I wouldn't, right? Because the world says, no, we want wealth. We want power. We want strength. We want influence. We want good looks. Everything. And Jesus says, yeah, but my kingdom's not of this world. I don't value those things. In fact, if you have all those things and you value them deeply, you will be tempted to rely on them to build your own kingdom, to be your own king or queen ruling over your world. And you'll miss that the best kingdom is sitting right there with not only the doors open, but no doors. It's just an open doorway waiting for you to enter. But here's the catch. It's a low doorway. You have to crawl to get in. And many of us don't want to crawl to get in. We'd rather waltz in, looking good, pulling behind us a wagon full of trophies that we can show God, look how good I am and why I deserve to be in your kingdom. And he says, nope, poor in spirit. That's what gets you. In fact, later Jesus would have two stories where he interacts with two groups of people to, to, to really explain what this means to be poor in spirit. One kind of situation is he meets a rich young ruler. He's a young man, he's rich, but he's very moral. He wants to be in the kingdom. And Jesus sees that he loves his money and his wealth more than he loves Jesus. So he says, sell it all and follow me. And the man goes away sad. Because he loves those things more than Jesus. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. If you've ever heard some story about there being like this small gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that camels could go through, it's not true, doesn't exist. He literally means the eye of a needle, which is why the disciples say it's impossible. Not it's hard, it's impossible. You can't fit a camel through the eye of a needle, no matter how often you try. To which Jesus says, but with God, all things are possible. 
God can teach the rich to become small enough to pass through the eye of a needle. But then the next group of people he interacts with, that he says, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven, are little children. And we read this in, in Matthew 18. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why do we have to become like children? He's not saying become innocent and pure. Little children are not innocent and pure. They're devious, okay? <laughs> They're born that way. You have to teach them to obey, right? That's, it's not it. What, why you need to become like a child is because children are gift experts. Let me explain it this way. When someone comes to you, you say you're tired and you're shoveling your driveway, and they say, hey, can I help? Sometimes there's this tendency in us to be like, oh, I'm fine. Uh, I can do this, right? Now, compare that to children. If you go to a kid and say, here, would you like some candy? They're not going to say, you know, I feel bad just taking this from you. Could I, like, cook you a meal and, like, earn it? Could I shovel your driveway so I can feel like it's okay for me to accept a gift from you? No. They're just like, thanks. (laughs) They're eating it, right? And they're they're just shameless. They will just receive. Hey, you want to give me candy? I'll take it. You want to give me cookies? Take it, too. Just keep handing it over. No pride. They just humbly receive. And that's the way we're to be with God. It says you actually need to be a receiver. You just need to be like, great God, I'll take it. See, God's not trying to say you have to crawl to get into my kingdom because he's mean and wants to make you grovel. What God's trying to do is say, look, the door's open, but you need to learn to be empty. So I'll make the door small enough that you have to be empty to get through. And someone who's like a child goes, wait, you'll give me the whole kingdom of heaven? All the blessings of the kingdom and all I have to do is crawl? I'm in. Let's go. There is no like, oh, I need to earn enough. It's like, boom, give it to me. Let's go. That's what Jesus is saying we need to be like. Because after all, you don't go to a food bank if your cupboards are full of food, do you? You don't wait three hours in line at a UW free med clinic if you have great health insurance and you just walk, waltz into the clinic because you have and so you're not ready to receive. See, if you're rich, you can build your own kingdom. If you think you're self-sufficient, I've got it all together. There can be that culture right now going around like, I am sufficient in myself. That is a lie. You are not sufficient. And if you think you're sufficient, you'll never ask God for help. You'll never become poor so you can actually receive the kingdom. Pride always says, I want another way. I want a way that allows me to still hold on to how good I am instead of humbling and lowering myself, becoming like a child. I think of a scene in uh, the movie Star Wars A New Hope, the first Star Wars movie, where uh, Han Solo and... Luke are off to rescue Leia, and they get her out of the jail, and they're, like, shooting at the stormtroopers in this tunnel, and there's, like, no way out. And I think it's Leia, if I remember right. Like, spots, like, this great down to, like, basically garbage disposal area. She blasts a hole in it, and, like, it's like, let's go. And I think if I remember right, it's Hans, but I could be wrong, is, like, kind of balks initially at going in. But there's no other way. So just go in. Pride says to God, I don't want to jump into the garbage disposal if that's the only way to be saved. I'd rather die in the hallway. 
And that's exactly what you'll get if you don't accept his offer. Jesus says over and over again, everyone outside the kingdom will eventually receive death and destruction and judgment. After all, he is the God who made the whole world, who made every single one of us. And yet, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, in some parts of our life, have spat in his face and said, no thanks, I'll rule my own world, thanks. There's a term for that, it's called treason. Rejecting the lawful authority. And there's a consequence for that. And it's not good. But, You don't have to be outside where there's judgment. You can enter the kingdom freely. You just have to get in line and receive the handout. But as soon as I put it like that, so often we say, no, I don't want the handout. That's called pride. I know, I struggle with it too. I'm sufficient. I can do it. I don't need to depend on others, God. I'm not that poor that I need a handout. But if you think that, you have not taken stock recently of your spiritual bank account. You have not opened the mail and seen the spiritual bill that's coming due at Judgment Day and how much it will cost you. If you think you're not really poor and in need of God, you have not slowed down and taken stock. As if you really looked at your spiritual bank account, you would realize you are bankrupt and there's still a bill to be paid and you could never in a million lifetimes pay it. See, there's only two ways to enter the kingdom. One way is perfection. From the moment you were born to the moment you die, be perfect in every thought, in every word, and in every deed. If you go, can go ahead and do that, you can skip this whole sermon. You're fine course that applies to none of us right i mean the pharisees tried and jesus will tell them no 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 they still fell short you've got to be more righteous than them they tried really hard and they did not do it see if you still think you're fine that you're not really that poor you have not really stared god in the face anyone who really sees god knows that they are bankrupt and if you're, if you're not sure about that, go home, look up in your Bible, Isaiah 6, and read the story of the prophet Isaiah, a good man, quote unquote, who when he sees the edge of God's garment, does not say, great, this is awesome, what a party, but falls down on his face and says, woe is me, I'm unclean. That's what it's like to truly see God. But that's not the only way into the kingdom. The other way is that the king offers pardon. Treason forgiven, treason erased, forgotten because the prince, Jesus, came and took our punishment of treason on the cross. And so he can offer pardon. He forgives. If you just come and say, God, I'm needy, I'm hungry, I'm weak, he strengthens you. He fills you. He satisfies you. He invites you into the best kingdom with the best feast, and he says, it's free. I'm footing the whole bill for you. You just have to come. I'm footing the bill. That's the good news of the gospel. It's, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where, where Paul says, For you know the grace, the undeserved gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus was wealthy and he humbled himself, became poor, so we could taste the richness of enjoying God in his kingdom. That is a good king. A king who doesn't take, but who gives. And it's a good kingdom. And now you can see why Jesus later in the gospel says, the kingdom of heaven is so good, it's worth selling everything you have to get it. Sell it all. Nothing is worth holding on to if it would hold you back from entering. Because the kingdom is so good. The king is so good. Maybe some of you this morning know that. You sense your, your poverty of spirit. You sense your need. You sense it daily. Oh, how I need him. That, then you're, then you're, you're hearing this word right. And all throughout history, it's been those who recognize their need that flock to the gospel of Jesus. It was the prostitutes and tax collectors that gathered around him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians to the church there, not many of you were wise or rich or powerful. No, it was all the poor that were gathering. You can see in missions where in India, it's the deletes, the untouchables that have flocked to Jesus in record numbers because they know they are needy and they see in Jesus a king who offers them everything out of his grace. But what if this morning, if you're honest, you feel actually rich? You don't really sense that poverty, that need of God. Maybe you need to hear the words that Jesus says to the rich young ruler. Go, sell all you have, follow me. Whatever it is that makes you feel rich, sell it. Be willing to give it up to follow Jesus. Don't depend on it. I'm not sure what that is. It could be a million things. It could be that you've grown up your whole life in church. And you can be like, I can show you the sticker chart from when I was six. Every Bible verse memorized, man. I never missed a week. Look at me. I'm good. It, it could be that you're like, man, I'm a really good person. I volunteer a lot. I serve. I'm way better than all my neighbors. Or maybe it's you actually have lots of money. Like you've got a pretty good life. And you don't feel need. Whatever it is, we need to humble ourselves. Come. And you'll know that you think of yourself as rich when you balk at coming to Jesus with empty hands. And I can show up in two ways. You, you, you can say, no way, Jesus. I, I don't like your one way. I want to pick my own way to get to you, and I'm not coming unless you open another door. That's pride. But there's also another form of pride. It's a form of pride that says, Jesus, I can't come. You don't know how bad I am. You don't know how messed up I am. You don't really know how sinful I am. I, I can't come. That too is pride. Because it's saying that you know more than God. That your sins are bigger than his grace. You'd say, no, come. Come. And that's why I love our weekly rhythm of communion. Have you ever thought about this? Every week, if you trust in Jesus, you stand up out of your seat publicly in front of everyone and walk up front here with open hands, with empty hands. You're admitting you have nothing to bring. You can only come and receive. And receive you do. From the fullness of Jesus. 
And that's a reminder of our need for Jesus. I think another thing that helps stir up our need for Jesus is prayer. Prayer reveals whether you're depending on him. Because if you think you're fine, you don't pray a lot. If you pray a lot, you probably because you need a lot. But then even as you pray, it doesn't just reveal where your heart is. It teaches your heart to depend more. It teaches your heart, God, give me today my daily bread. I can be tempted to look at my bank account and see the next six months of bread. But actually, God, unless you provide today, I'm empty. Forgive me, God. I fell short again today. I need your grace. Lead me not into temptation, God. On my own, I'd wander there. Help. I need help. Friends, the kingdom of heaven is a beautiful place. And the road that travels in and through it is called poor in spirit, weak and needy, hungry and thirsty. A lot of times I think we just don't like walking that road. Because what we're afraid of is if we actually admit those things, then actually we'll be unloved. We'll be left out of whatever the sweet community is. Because our whole culture has always taught us you have to earn your way in. And Jesus says, no. I've walked this road before you. I humbled myself and became poor. I was meek. I was thirsty. I've walked this road for you. It's a good road. Follow me. And that's such a more beautiful place because you don't always have to fight for security. You don't always have to fight to keep earning your place there. No, you entered empty. And if every day you wake up and still feel empty, you're still in the perfect spot to be in and to be loved just as you are. And imagine if there was a community that really lived this out more and more where we actually welcomed and loved everyone, no matter how empty or poor they were, because we know what it is to be empty and poor, and yet to be so loved by God and Jesus. Now that kind of community, which I see evidences of it in the vine, and one that let's see continue, that kind of community, friends, now that would shine like a light in the dark, and it would be a city on a hill. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that while we were weak, you sent your son Jesus to die for us. That you invite us and say, come all who are poor and thirsty and hungry, eat bread, drink wine at no cost because you've paid it all, Jesus. Help us, Father, to sense our poverty in our spirits, our need for you and your son Jesus every day so we might taste the riches of Jesus every day. Forgive us for those days when we think that we can do it on our own, that we're self-sufficient. Humble us again, all of us, so we might be a community that loves others and glorifies you. Pray this in your name, amen.